I am out on a rocky outcrop on the Atlantic Ocean. That is how the islanders describe Inishir, the smallest of the three Aran Islands. It measures just three kilometres by three kilometres. The landscape consists mostly of rock and there are no trees. It is the 1st of August 2016. I mention the date as it is probably one that will get written into the history of the island and I will tell you more about that later. My original plan was to tell the story of the annual Curragh race. I had become interested in the race, it was all over Facebook, and I thought it was intriguing how this very traditional race was still going strong and continues to be one of the busiest weekends for the island. In 2016, they had bought new Curraghs for the race. Marcus O'Cushtalo, who's from the island and is involved in organising the regatta, told me that teams were due to come from all over Ireland to compete. Four boats actually even coming from uh, Cork. They're rowing across from Clare in five Newbugs, which would be four-seater, four-seater boats. And there's about a group of 20. That's, that's a pretty historical thing, like never happened before, as far as I'm aware. Like even, like we've got a social media page on, on Facebook and the, the interest in that is immense. Like even this week alone, coming up to the race, got 25,000 hits and the same the week before, so. That is pretty good going. 50,000 hits in just two weeks for a tiny island with a population of only 270 people. And I am particularly impressed as the race is in Corks the traditional boat of the island. And it was used mainly for fishing back in the day. It was the only source of travel. There was no boats back then, let's say, the ferries or anything like that. That was literally the, the public transport of the time. Like, you, you'd you'd have two horses, like a set of keys to the car, you know. That's how dependent they were. They really, they really made life on the island a lot more bearable. The boats are not needed now for survival, but the scale of rowing is still being passed on through the generations. What's in your blood's in there? Well, we think we think it's anyways, but we'll try it. So, well, it's a sport that you train in. Like, it doesn't matter what you have unless you train and put the work in, you're not going to get the result. I was surprised as to how much training the Islanders put in for the race. No one really realises the amount of work going into it. Let's say the top crews, they could be rowing nearly all year round or make sure to keep fit. It's not unheard of as well. I know a guy I rode uh, in his junior days. They'd go out in the wooden curves and they'd actually tie a bucket on the back of it to make sure to make it harder again for the resistance. So then when you'd be out in the canvas, it'd be like nothing. Come on, let's. Good year. I left Marcus to his training session. I'd never been to Inishir before and I wanted to talk to some of the islanders to find out what it was like to live on the island. Visitors cannot take their cars onto the island. You have to get around on foot, horse and carriage, or by bike. I opted for the bike, which I hired from Inishir Bike Rental. I got talking to Sirka Crow, who is from the island, and is currently studying in University College Cork, and she is back for the summer to work in the shop. Did you see it, Diana? And why, why did you come home in the summer? 
I love going back for the summer. Lots of people come back to work on the island, like where we work as well. There's so many people from around the world. And we love to actually explain to them what they can do on the island and everything like that too. So there's no tourist office on the island. We're just kind of an unofficial tourist office for them and hopefully make it just even better experience. And top, kind of go and explore, what would you do? Like go off to the castle, go out to the lighthouse and the cliffs of moor in the background. So it's really lovely, especially in the evening when there's sunset. And then going over and seeing the shipwreck, the Plassey over on the far side of the island and the lake. And then there are a few churches and the graveyard. And there is a sunken church inside there from the 10th century, St. Kevin's Church. So there's plenty to see. I had arranged to meet Paddy Crow, manager of the Inishir Co-op. So I headed off on my bike to meet him. I had been told if I wanted to find out how the island worked, he was the best person to ask. He was keen to know how I was getting on and who I was going to meet. So you asked me how I was getting on in this year. It's quite magical, really. It's very, it's different than what I thought. Um... Of course, everyone knows everyone here. Is that your daughter, by any chance? She told me that, yeah, Soraka. Yeah. She's lovely. <laughs> Soraka. It was funny because she said something nice. And, so she wants to do here anyway, kind of thing. What do you do? Because I, I, I find it fascinating that age group. Yeah. You know, it's very different from where I grew up. Naturally. And the first thing she said to me was, oh, I like to go out the other side of the island because it's beautiful and the, and the landscape is so different and you can just sit up on a rock and look out. It's just not. But it was really, it was genuine. She oh, wasn't yeah, just oh, she'd be genuine. It. Oh, yeah, she'd be genuine. Because she yeah. thought I might be interested in hearing it. Mm, genuine, no. what she yeah. liked doing. Mm. So tell me just about the co op itself, what the function is, and your role in it, how it manages. You're known as the island manager. The island manager. I'm sure I'm known. Yeah. Well. <laughs> The, the cooperative itself was started in 1971. It's a community development cooperative. It started out as when there was the need for the electricity and water and just basic services in the island. There was no flowing water on the island. That time it was all the well. And the same for electricity, it was all lamps or gas and that. So it changed. the world changed when the, the cooperative was formed. So we trade on behalf of people as well. So if you want... Uh, we'll say a thousand blocks or if you want a, a can of paint or whatever it is we, we'll get it for you so as well on top of that then we fight for the islanders and uh, say like the likes of the air service which is um you know huge on our priority list at the moment the pier which is massive on our priority list at the moment to try and get the pier done and that pier has become pretty well obsolete to the ferries and things like that that are using it now we'll say we deal a lot in problems <laughs> put it like that <laughs> and trying to solve them i mean it's multiple there it doesn't end really but in all those years it has accumulated property on the island on behalf of people's like as i'd say the cooperative is belong to the people of Inishir, and so is the property that the cooperative would own so we would own areas like the the um the football pitches and the campsite we'd the cooperative would own then the the secondary school and the public hall Th- there's really lovely places and these offices and um it is a very strong community really Paddy knew I was on the island to make a documentary about the race. So that, that, that's what I'm here to do that, but it surprised me as an island that it is very much a living, thriving community. It's very young. It is very young, I, I'd agree with you, yeah, we have a great young population on the island. Great young population, you said, like, and it is a lively place. I could see, as I cycled around the island, 
that it was alive, a bustling place, people out and about, kids playing. Down by the harbour, there is a steady stream of boats docking. The tourists are met by horse and carriage to show them around the island. And in between the boats, kids are diving into the cold, clear water. Facing onto the harbour, there is a row of small businesses. This is where I got my bike. And there is also the Man of Aaron Fudge, which is run by Owen Pohl, who's from the island. The plane coming in, yeah. Uh, the plane's been running since the mid-1970s, long before we had electricity even or stuff like that. So that's Yeah, um, before we had a proper pier. Um, it's a very important part of island life, you know, the, the life that is here kind of developed around that. You know, to have a daily connection to the mainland then was was incredible, really, like, and it showed a lot of vision by some people, so... We've great services at the moment. Our ferry service is fantastic as well, but just the two kind of work in conjunction, and it's played a big part in. Both have played. All the services play a big part in kind of what you see today. You see a vibrant community, really. I could see that chatting with Owen, a young family man living and working on the island. I was introduced to Gronia, a friend of Owen's, who's also a native of the island. Gronia left to study in Dublin, travel the world and work for years in Galway. And decided I wanted to move home. And I'm here ever since. And why did you want to come home? Um, I don't know. My sister had moved home uh, probably about three or four years just before me, um, when she was pregnant with her first child. Herself and her husband had always said if they were having kids, they'd rather bring them up here or try it out first anyway and see how it would be. And they're still here, what, nine years on? But I used to, I just find, you know, I'd ring home and it was just... She's got to spend so much time with mom and dad and just life's too short, kind of, you know. Oh, God, you're crying. <laughs> I'm awful. If you're talking to my sister, she's a hundred times worse than me. She's very Why are you crying? I suppose just to think of it. And I remember I I just, I got kind of miserable for a while then living and going. like I'd ring home and they were like, oh, we're out having a barbecue. We're going out for a walk. We're, you just... I don't know I just find you have more time to do stuff and you have more time to spend with the people you want to spend time with than you would generally when you were on the mainland like if I was in Galway you might be working till five after half five by the time you get home it could be seven o'clock you might have your dinner you didn't you'd sit down you didn't unless you went out of your way to make arrangements to meet people and to do stuff it was, you know, it was more, it was, it'd be more of a chore. Whereas here, you can walk outside the door and you're going to meet somebody, you know, or you're going to bump into somebody and you're like, gosh, we go for a walk or we'll go football training. <laughs> I know we found that's like people say to me, what do you do here in the winter? But I love it here in the winter. Um, there's always, there's always something happening. Even now, last winter, my brother-in-law, he is training for his black belt in karate and he can teach karate so he started beginners classes karate like so we were doing that twice a week there's always something happening there's every year somebody decides to do classes and something so and there's no big oh we have to fundraise and we have to get a venue we have um, to do that um, the co-op now the local co-op are really good um, like you said I just spoke to Paddy and they'd have a public well the public hall it's a community hall anyone's kind of allowed to use it as long as you respect the place and um, chip in a bit of money towards towards maintenance of the place like and I think it was really what helped here was the, um, the secondary school. 
when the secondary school got going on in this year changed things because before that everyone had to leave from 11 years of age, 11, 12 years of age and they were gone. They were all going to different schools so they didn't grow up together as a bunch whereas now they do and they've become very integrated with one another. Kathleen Nicanula, whose family has been living on the island for generations, had to leave to go to secondary school. Well, we left uh, 12 years of age to go to boarding school, but at a later stage then you didn't really come back. At that stage you went into work if you didn't go into education. So I went into civil service when I finished school. But um, I think nowadays uh, they decide if they want to live on the island and that's the decision they take. Whereas years ago you left and you went to work and maybe at the back of your mind you always thought, well, I want to go back to Nishir, but how are you going to do that at a later stage in a way, you know? Didn't always work out for people. It was a fairly new thing too because this was 69, kind of, you know, before that, that option wasn't there unless you got a scholarship. So... In a way, I suppose you thought you were being given a, you know, an option that wasn't there for people before you, but it was very difficult. To, I found very difficult the the landscape surrounded by trees and all that kind of stuff. Big trees. Where's the way out? You know, where's north, south, east, west? Out of this place, just. But here, you always know, you know, where Clare, where Galway, where everything was. That sense of I've been cut off from the world, really. Even though I suppose to other people, we're the ones who are cut off, but we don't see it that way. I think it's fabulous. I think it's great that young people, you know what I mean, are coming back and they want to be here more so than anywhere else. You know, I mean, that's amazing. To me, they're part of the culture instead of being apart, if you like. So Inishir is the place to be now. Isn't it great? But it must be great for you as a dad to know that your kids can go right up to, to secondary school here. Oh, it's fantastic, yeah, yeah. It's great because that's childhood, I suppose, ultimately. Like, you know, and um, once they hit 18 and go to college, well, they're adults, you know. Um, it's kind of the stage of life you hope to spend with them. So it is, it is great, yeah. And the fact that the education is good, you know. So even when I graduated um, from the secondary school here, there was only three people in my class. So you only had three? What was that like? Ew, yeah, you always had your homework done, always. There was no uh, leaving school early or anything like that anyway, but it was good. Um, We learned a lot um, and the teachers definitely gave us a lot of time and a lot of effort into it. So we all did really well. As I cycled around the island, I became more mesmerised by the landscape. It is different. It has a raw, barren beauty. Technically, it's known as the Karst landscape, the same as what you would see in the Burn and Clare. It is a landscape with no trees, just fields of grey stone walls woven like lace across the rocks. This landscape has come about in part due to the farming methods that have been used for generations on the island. The Project Aran Life, co-funded by the EU, works with farmers to maintain the island's habitat and also to advise the government on agricultural policy for small islands. I went for a walk with Patrick McKern, the project manager of Aran Life. It's done. 
Which is just come on this way, we'll show you. Wow. It's extraordinary. It is, yeah. Um, and you just come across, working on the island, you just come across these, I suppose I like to call them wow areas. Cause you just go wow when you see them, that's lovely, you know. Um, and we just see this sort of mosaic of small fields and this m- massive number of stone walls just forming sort of like a like a capillary network right round over the, for the island. Um, just stunning, stunning landscape. All those different fields could belong to different farmers, you know, it wouldn't be the one farmer that owned them all. Um, but a lot of that would have been sort of cropped land as well for, for potatoes. So in different fields, one farmer would own, another farmer would field next door. Um, and so it's just a, a range of owners. But it meant that if a farmer would have a bit of that deeper soil, but also a bit of this stonier stuff, and then you get a sort of in-betweens of it, you know, going from stony where... A lot of it has been made where the farmers bought in seaweed and sand and formed a layer, um, and then it was just the plants colonised then. And that has been happening for a long time. You look, some people say to us, we just see grey. But when I look around, I don't see any grey. I mean, the lichen grown on the rocks, that's pure orange, yellow. You know, you go down to the seashore, every colour in the rainbow is in the seaweeds, the reds and, you know, all those kind of strong, vibrant colours. The land has been, to an extent... Um, carved out of the rock um, and the resulting grassland vegetation is very species rich and within a European context that puts them um, very important and that's as a result they've been designated as special areas of conservation. The islands contain maybe greater than 50% or up to 50% of the plant species of Ireland and if you take it that there's no woodland or no bog you maybe realise that 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 they're very so important genetic biodiversity spot for Ireland. You know, so if we want to maintain Ireland's plant genetics, if we maintain the plants growing in the Iron Island, we're we're halfway there. You know. And how long has this island been inhabited? Well, I suppose basically we say five thousand years is the initial. Uh, a period because we know just downhill from us here that they found some broken axe heads. We're looking over towards O'Brien's Castle here. Now the O'Briens were related to Brian Baru, as in descendants of Brian Baru. They came here about 1190 and were controlling what was happening in that stretch of water between us and County Clare where we had piracy initially, then smuggling and all the rest. It's an asset to Ireland to have always living on an island, a huge asset. And uh, they should recognise the asset. You know, if we disappear, so will the Irish language, so will the way of life that was there for how many countless generations and things like that. And then they'll look at islands uh, like, we'll say, and blask it more and say, oh God, these were great places, these were. You know, this idea of where is terrible, it's an awful thing. And it doesn't take a whole lot to, to turn an island upside down where people say, oh God, you know, it's more difficult to live here now and that it would get into your brain and say, I'm not going to live here anymore because I don't have the services, I'm not sure, you know, things like that. So we're under constant pressure like that. And I say people will, that we deal with on the mainland haven't lived in an island, so they don't understand that pressure, you know. And what about the practical stuff? Like you've got one shop, mm-hmm. you run out of stuff. 
What does happen? Like, yeah, a chemist or any of those? Chemist, no, no chemist. There's a local GP, but yeah, you you just have to go to Galway when you when you're looking for anything really, or if somebody's in in town. It's like my friends in town today. She'll always she'll text, "Oh, do you need anything?" Every week, somebody is in or out that'll get something for you if you need it. Like another thing, I was like, that's people say, "Oh, online shopping," but you would. I do a fair bit of even now like that when you're talking about a chemist and all like boots online orders I ordered a box last week instead when I was like oh that saves me going to go away to get any kind of toiletries that you wouldn't get in the in the local shop like it's just so handy the box will be here the following day yeah supplies um we have a cargo ship lost tomorrow that comes three times a week during winter and four times a week during summer and the supplies will come from the mainland that way again that's a that's a fantastic service you know it's here early in the morning and you go down, collect your stuff, and away you go. It's just an added thing. Most of the suppliers around Galway would be used to it, but trying to explain to new suppliers that they're not actually sending it to a house that or to a shop, you know, that you need to leave it somewhere where it gets brought on a boat and then brought off and all that. But that's just part of island life, you know. It's not like you see the pictures in the pubs and that it's not too long ago that everything was brought ashore from a ship by Corrock. So we really have it easy you know people kind of ask is it hard to live here and compared to even 30 40 years ago it's not it's with all the services we have and everything it's quite straightforward now relatively speaking maybe to someone who doesn't live in an island it doesn't seem that way but there's huge um changes have come in the island the way people live so and even this week as we speak there are houses putting in um, so lots of solar panels lots of heat pumps and all sorts of new technology going into houses uh, we're, we're very big into um, what we'll say being green if you want for want to we're very big into and have been for many years now looking at the island being self-sufficient if possible we're really getting into the 21st century on in a year and it makes living easier for these people. Like As Paddy said to me, if you've not lived here, or if you're like me, from the mainland, you really have no idea what is involved in living on a small island. The plans that have to be put in place for getting things on and off the island. The consideration given to where their energy comes from, and even how they get their fresh water. Big ferry now you'd see in the pier, like you see there's all the other, the Doolan ferries, but the larger one, um, it's shipping in water every day, twice a day nearly, since I'd say around April. There's pipes running from the pier up to our storage tanks and they just pump the water up through those pipes. So um, I suppose it's a sign that the place is busy, but it's not a, it's not a long-term solution to, to the water problems. We, we're just completely reliant on rainwater. And believe it or not, we don't actually get enough rain to cater for the amount of water we need. Right. I find that hard. <laughs> I know. It wasn't just the practical aspect of living on an island that struck me. There was something about the people, about their sense of community, their connection with their island and each other. It was so strong. And it wasn't just me that could see what a remarkable community this is. In 2014, the island community was recognised on a global level. We were invited to go to the Living Communities competition, which is a worldwide competition. And um, we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into. But I'll tell you, the pressure came on and it was a big deal. It was huge. And then to end up in China, 
Do you know, I mean, I never expected to end up in China, to, to me to end up in China and then stand up and be counted like another 50 or 60 countries that were there vying for the same gold medal that we got. You know, it's incredible. Well, actually, we got two gold medals. Do you know? Yeah, we did one as a, as the best population of an island, or not as an island, as a population up to twenty five thousand people, and that was a gold medal. Just saying, look, you have a fantastic um, way of living and and the way you do. With the second gold medal was for the healthiest lifestyle in the world that beat all populations of categories that was in the in the competition to cities with millions of people. So it was just an incredible, um, an incredible win, you know. What makes you so healthy and so great? Well, it isn't just the fresh air. It is the way that people live and live with each other and get on with each other. You know what I mean? It isn't that we're all goody-goodies or anything else like that out here. You know, we, I suppose we understand one another and try, you know what I mean, when there are problems, try to work them out in the best way we can and things like that. You're watching out for people no matter what. And I think that's one great thing about living in a community like this. This is not a heritage site. It is no. a heritage site, but it's a living community. It is absolutely a living community, yeah. And like, I mean, it is very deep-rooted as well. And I suppose that came out, that's came out when we were doing our presentations for the awards, that we are a deep-rooted uh, community going back generations and um, it's very hard to explain because like you know you, you have to live and grow with it you can't just get up in the morning and explain how you live in an island in the middle of this community in Irish you'd say uh, we live in each other's shadows which you do it is obvious for the visitors to the island that there is a very different way of living here if they were to themselves somebody very important on the mainland well when they came here they had to leave that behind because the credit card didn't work and you didn't bring your car with you accommodation was for everybody so we didn't have an elite kind of system of accommodation for people who had a lot of money everybody stood side by side you couldn't prove who you were here you had to leave all that behind you so there was no social class you couldn't show your social status and is there a social class among the community here and people living here i don't think so i don't think so i think our first inkling of that was when we left the island and really i suppose that's one advantage of the tourism industry or you know, I suppose the fishing industry before that or the seaweed gathering, it allowed you to make an income for yourself and to, to make a good life for yourself if you wanted to. Mm. So it, it's kind of up to the person themselves. It's not fantastic for the kids growing up. I wonder what mm. shock they get when they go to the mainland and they see the differences and there's such elitism. Yes, they're probably... Hmm... I wonder, do they notice it until they're well into their 20s, maybe? Maybe they're solid enough for themselves, but then... I think they probably are. God, look at this day, isn't it gorgeous? And it's quite a cloudy day, but it's still... It's still quite beautiful. When you get blue skies, and then your blue sea, and your sun... It is. It's just fantastic. But you get, you get, I suppose we get to see all sorts of weather out here. Like it's amazing then when you, what you can see, like you see the pier now and the amount of boats that are in there winter time. 
some days a, a boat can't come near that pier like the sea is all the pier is covered like you can't you can't actually see the pier the weather was holding up and i was enjoying cycling around and particularly enjoying the breaks for cups of tea and cake choc on tay is a small restaurant on the island run by husband and wife michael and alicia donahue who were happy to chat to me about life on the island Yeah, in the winter, sometimes there are no boats and no planes or the cargo is doesn't come or is delayed. Or uh, I think mostly people just learn how to change their plans or to... You learn, yeah, how to stay flexible, and you just kind of get, you just get on with it. How does business run through the winter? I mean, uh, we do, we don't run through the winter. We're like all the businesses here really were open for the season. Um, from St. Patrick's Day, Easter now is kind of things start kicking off. The boats start running, and uh, the boats from Doolin and um, run through until the weather's turned September, October. Uh, the season's stretching out. I'd say that's one thing that say even I mean I'd venture to say even since I've been here which isn't really very long I think But how do you survive in the winter then if your business is in uh, we need uh, We need a break in the fin- winter to look after the family and do other t- t- things too for, for the winter It's make, make hay while the sun shines is, yeah. is, the, is kind of the way things are here and I think I say nearly every household would be would be in that way at least in some respects where they have to really kind of work hard, nose the grindstone during the, you know, during the s- season, and um, then put it by for the winter. Yeah. And then the winter's kind of, the community kind of comes in together more, and sort of daily life goes on. Um, and where are you from? Because you're not. <laughs> I'm not low. I'm I'm a blow-in. I'm from Wisconsin originally, the states, and. Um, yeah. How did you end up in the ship? I uh, came originally with my grandparents, and at the time Michael was doing pony and trap tours of the island, and he um, he gave us a tour of the uh, Inishir on our trip trip to the island, and that's how we met. So, as they say, the rest is history. You yeah, and yeah, he's kind of never, yeah, kind of never left again. Well, what was that like? What's that transition like? Yeah, well, ask me in another decade, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm still trans. Uh, fine, Michael. What do you always say? I've missed. Um, I miss the trees. I miss the trees. There was and are some cultural differences that uh, I've some I've gotten used to, and I don't even kind of recognize as differences anymore. And some others, I still kind of have to. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. It would be hard to even put most of them into words, I think. Do you know? Uh, I mean, just like at a very practical level, there's just like logistical, practical things about living on an island, never mind running a business, um, you know, raising it. Now we have three children. We're raising a family here. And, um, you know, this is life for them. They don't recognize living on an island as something different. They think that going, being life in Galway and on the mainland is very well, interesting, because it's different for them, you know, but to, that would be the thing that they're trying to figure out. Hmm, what's all this getting into a car and getting out of a car? And That's what they always say. How long is it going to take us to get there when we when we go anywhere on the mainland? Like they're just used to everything being, you know, at their fingertips, basically. After a couple of days, let's go back home. Michael, you, you're from here. You're yeah, I was born here. 
How many generations now do you go back? I don't know, three, four, five, maybe. But you Six, seven, eight. <laughs> <laughs> and have you seen much changes on the island? Oh yeah, every <laughs> year it's changed. Really? Yeah. In what way? Building sites, sports facilities, business, nearly everything. You know, that kind of thing. That's an awful lot of change in a very short time. He was brought up here and his mother would have been uh, a amazing Ben and Chi, you know, and had students for years and kept B&B and the whole rest and raised a large family. So when I was first moved to the island and I was kind of learning how to be some version of a vanity, I guess. Um, I went to her looking for for lessons on baking and cooking and things like that. So. And your mom, she does she she still around? No, actually, she passed away there six, two months ago. Oh. She did. She she had a beautiful life here, and she told everybody that's working in this house how to make cakes and <laughs> and brown bread and scones and everything. And but her recipe li- lives on. Yeah. It does. That's that's what what we like to think of as as heritage, as as um, food, the way the food tasted when you were young, prepared with love. <laughs> <It's> delicious. <laughs> I had your poppy seed cake and your tart, your goat's tart was gorgeous. Yeah. Is that local goat's cheese? That's local goat's cheese. It's made on Inishmore. We don't do anything complicated. We just do things that are simple and fresh. And do you, do you yeah. garden organically? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's all yeah. organic. I cut my own seaweed every year. My own cowlick and everything for the potatoes and everything. Oh, for cowlick, it's a seaweed. It's a d- all different. Well, there's six or seven different kinds of seaweed. But my favorite is the cowlick, the big, long, black stuff. And I, I, yeah, I cut it down by the shore and uh, with low tide and uh, use it. And then use my... We have hens and ducks and use their fertilizer as well for... If I run out of the cow, I'll have to see. Yeah. Okay. It, it makes a big difference for carrots now. You can get carrots now in the shop, and the carrots here now is much sweeter. Do you still do the horse and cart? No, I don't, no. You got your wife? I got, I got my wife now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do it anymore. Michael may have given up the tours, but his days are still filled with many different jobs. But that is what you have to do. I'm never bored. We make sure we all have so many different jobs to do, you know. I could now be packing seaweed there because we sell different seaweed products. Kathleen is the manager of CLASS, an organisation formed by the community to support a range of small businesses. In addition to selling seaweed, they also run the community bus, guided walks of the island, Classathon, an adventure run, and they provide an Irish translation service. They also make baskets... Aaron jumpers and the Chris, a traditional woven belt. Design. These are the crisses, aren't they? Yeah. So how are they done? How are they made? Just basically, we, we put up a warp. So basically, you look at the colours that you're looking for, and then we say to Thomas, make a Chris out of that, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and then when he does it, we say, actually, that's not what we were looking for. Well... <laughs> Well, that's what I get now to thanks after all my trouble. So what would you do? Would you walk out the door and never come back? And how long have they been doing the views that you told us? No. Too? Well, too long. <laughs> What's the tradition behind them? Uh, I suppose they use them. The men were the peacocks in our society, we think. You see, they liked 
to be the colourful ones and the women weren't half as colourful. Yeah, it's a very colourful piece of clothing, traditional clothing kind of worn. These traditional crafts are still being made on the island and the craftspeople are kept going by the tourists buying their work. Tourism has become really big on the island, all right. Is that the main breadline for the island? I would say at this stage it is, yes. I would say now at this stage. Like, it started off some years ago, before tourism was anyway, like it is now, like going back, where the, especially the Irish College that started in 1960 here, that not long brought the students in and dispersed them to the houses on the island, but then it brought those parents of the students in, and it still does, like today, but that was hugely important to, to, to the future of the island that time, and did for gosh generations if you like yeah where it's still very strong tourism has really sort of taken over that from it from it and how does that fit to live here does it start to feel like you're living in a bit of a tourist area you know that sort of it is it is most doubt no doubt i mean we need to i suppose you know think about what we have especially like what we have in our irish language and everything else like that in the tourism end, I suppose we should be, you know, minding our culture as well, what we have. So it's a mix. It's a thing. It's not easily done in, when it comes to tourism. We have Arasena, which is an absolutely fantastic asset to the island. Arasena is the art centre, and I cycled up the very steep hill east of the harbour to have a look around what is proudly claimed to be the most westerly art centre in Europe. Mairead Nagalakor, the director, told me the story of the art centre. It was a factory originally. What was the factory before? Um, It was a knitting factory. And the year 2000, they decided to turn it into an art centre, which was really amazing and and far-seeing, really, because... Who's they? Well, well, the islanders, the islanders, yeah. It is very far-sighted. Yeah. It took a lot of energy and a lot of work and a lot of imagination. And also what I really admired, which I was surprised about, and that sounds arrogant on my part, and I don't mean it, is that the programme is really interesting and diverse and current and traditional. It's mm. not just traditional. And in terms of your programming and your audience, is it geared towards the people living on the island or tourists coming in? All. All of that. Because really we, we have to gear it towards the islanders because it's their art centre. But also we have to remember that we have tourists from all over the world here up to 15,000 a year, so we have to cater towards everybody. One other thing is that there is an an image, kind of as the day tripper coming in, of Mm. this very traditional, very beautiful environment, Mm. steeped in in a very Irish tradition. And then there's the the community, the thriving, living, sustainable, current community. Mm. How do they work? Well, it's hard to get that balance right. It's really hard to get that balance right because we're trying to keep things... You know, like traditional exhibitions and so on, we're trying to keep those going. But we're also trying to entertain people who want something completely new. But you have to just keep that balance and get that balance right. As I left Arasena, the weather had really taken a turn for the worse. I wasn't too happy cycling, and I could not fathom how Marcus and the other crew could row in such wind and rain. I asked Marcus's dad what the forecast was. So what's the weather doing now? It's getting uh, going to blow up tonight anyway, huh? 
basically uh, we see the, all the skippers on the different ferries are saying they're running for shelter from Anishir today. Everybody heading out. The forecast is bad, so we might we might still have one ferry to Rossville, but that's uh, we're not that sure about that either. So the forecast is bad. So when the forecast is bad, they all just run for cover and leave us here on our own. <laughs> What's that like when you feel it? You could just think that could It's great. Yeah. Everybody who, who hasn't the, the whatever it takes to winter it out or to stay in the bad weather. It's a little bit like, you know, when you're in the winter and you look around at the birds that kind of stay with you for the winter and you kind of feel closer to those ones. But yeah. Mm. And what happened? Because yesterday the weather was the weather was really bad, and the boats had stopped, and the planes mm. were coming in. And I went to the shop, and there was no milk left. And your mum was slagging me since this happens very rarely. Like, get over yourself. <laughs> like, what is that sense like when you go? Oh, um, I'm stuck here now. I'm not going anywhere. You just deal with it. It's, it's not. I know. That's I find people who don't live here they'll often say, "Oh God, you know." I have to make sure this is a boat leaving again in the evening or, you know, if they're coming in for a day trip or they have to make sure that they're not going to be stuck on the island. It's like, imagine being stuck on the island and we kind of go, oh, sure, if you're stuck, you're stuck. You get on with it, you know. <laughs> That's the way we see it. So it's kind of like that. But you generally, you have to be kind of, you plan ahead if you have appointments and stuff and go away. You know, if you're going to the dentist or whatever, you make sure you look at the weather forecast in advance. The storm got worse. But life on the island went on. Oh my gosh, my teeth are fudged. Oh wow. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, hey, we just realised we didn't bring a whole lot of money with us. Is there a place to get money out on the island? Um, the shop and pubs will do cash back. There's no ATM as such. Oh, they'll do but, cash back. But they'll do but cash they'll take back. This place. There's, There's a, a small ish major issue today. Don't spend all your money before you eat lunch because there's no electricity. And I oh. think there's a major <laughs> problem somewhere. Oh. So it just went last night. We get the power from the mainland, but from the cable mainland. runs oh, underwater. Oh, okay. Sure, we'll get one and then. Um, okay. So I guess we're going to And what about. Rocky Road. Yeah. Heavenly Honeycomb. Salt of Caramel. Yeah. Oh, they, look. Look young. they all look young. Thanks. That's a good start, anyway. Do you make them yourself? I do. Good I do. Thanks a million. Thanks. Thank Enjoy. You very much. Take care. Bye. How are you? How are you getting on? Not too bad. Can I have one black coffee? You can't because I have no electricity. It turned out to be quite a storm. As I mentioned at the beginning, August 2016 was a historic month for the island. It was all over the media. An underwater electricity cable from the mainland had been damaged and the island was without electricity for five days. I found it challenging. Candlelight is only romantic for so long. But what it did do was show the islanders in their true light. This was a difficult time. It was the busiest weekend of the year. Business was relying on the revenue. The power cut forced small businesses like Chocante to close. Islanders' freezers full of food were at risk of being ruined. Storage and medical supplies were under threat. So what do the islanders do? What they have been doing for generations. Put another plan in place and get on with it. There were a few generators on the island, which was shared around to maintain the freezers. They worked together as a community without any fuss. Well, we have a generator that runs everything through the shop, so everybody's coming up here to plug their phones in and everything, trying to get a bit of normality back, I suppose. <laughs> Kids are like, It's mad. <laughs> 
<laughs> we planted this for you especially. Do you care that there's no electricity? Nope. What do you want to do? Um, well, I have this science kit that you plug wires in and stuff and you can put on the FM radio. Are you still training tonight? Yeah. At six. You don't need electricity for that, do Should we go for a swim or something after it? <laughs> Says I, who'll probably stick my little toes in. I did that this morning. <laughs> That's it. That's as far as it goes. So they made another plan. As Alicia's note on Chocante read... Closed. Island power is out. Plan B. Go to the beach. Have a picnic. Sing. Dance. Chat. Enjoy your day. Well, come here, what about the race? I want to jump in then. Yes, the race doesn't go ahead. It doesn't, like, it doesn't. That might be going too far. With the storm getting worse, no ferries and no electricity. Left us with no option but to cancel the race. Uh, it's, it's a pity, but we have to do what we have. It's just not safe. Um, it's an enjoyable sport and there's no need to be out there in, in rough weather. So there you go. I went to Inishir to record the race, but the weather changed my plan. When I got back home, Olympic fever had started and Ireland became engrossed in rowing. Thanks to the O'Donovan brothers, we suddenly realised the skill and hard work that goes into rowing. But the islanders knew that already. It is in their blood. It is part of who they are. A community steeped in tradition who live in the moment. In 2014, they were awarded two gold medals for having the healthiest lifestyle in the world. But I reckon they have known that for generations. Another Way is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Produced and narrated by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Contact Studio.